Hi, everybody. Welcome to CritCast. This is episode three, uh, How to Get Good in Isolation. Today, I'm talking with uh, Tommy Conboy. He is quite a renowned player. Some of you might have heard of him. Uh, but before I go any further, I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, how you doing? Um, so yeah, I'm one of the Scottish players. I joined around Q3 of season one, and I've been playing Warhammer on the Worlds quite a lot since then. Yeah, I think we first met uh, the Scottish Grand Clash for Shadespire, I think that was 2018, yes. Yeah, I was still relatively fresh out the box then. For example, yeah, I still this, didn't uh, know how Last Chance works. <laughs> <laughs> well, Last Chance got confused. I think one of the Shadespire cards that confused me a lot until my friends actually told me since was Acrobatic. So, because I thought it only worked if you're on guard. And then I'm like, no, as long as you've got a dodge, you're fine. Uh, but Last Chance can be confusing, which is why it's probably been banned in Relic play, unfortunately. But there we go. Yeah, that was an epic card. I miss it. <laughs> Since most I of the Warbats I play are always dodges. Yeah, some people would argue it, it it should never come back, but those people are wrong. Uh, um, but yeah, today I'm here to talk about uh, how to get good in isolation, because I know a lot of players aren't as lucky as me, or a lot of people around there where, especially in the UK, tournaments are very close and easy to get to, uh, as well as just having a really good local community where you can find a game. So if you ever thought, how can I get good in an area where there's not enough players for me to play or there's not enough tournaments for me to get good at. I wanted to chat to Tommy today because he's a perfect example of how to make that work. Because if you didn't know, he won the UK Games Expo Grand Clash for 2019, which was over 100 players, I think 115. But I think he'd be a great example because uh, not that Scotland is a small place, it's just where he is, even though it's a city of Scotland, it's still quite a sparse area. I think the Scottish scene is still quite small, I'd say, in comparison. Yes, it's taken quite a hit lately, actually. I think at our peak, we were lucky to maybe get 10 to an event. Obviously, the Grand Clash kind of drew a bigger crowd in, but you know yourself, even then, what was our top, yeah. like 26? So yeah, it's, it's tough to get players up in Scotland. Yeah, because it's like, it is more spread out, and even the Scottish Grand Clash, which was in Perth, isn't always the easiest place to get to. Uh, but it was growing, because the first Grand Clash had 20 players, the second was going to have 36, but then eight dropped on the day, so we only had 28. Uh, but even then, it's it's still got a fairly regular th scene, but I think it's um, a good representation of people who live in more sparsely connected areas with not such a big scene. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've always struggled to get events going as well. Uh, we've got a couple of folk that are trying to kind of get things up and running, obviously. The current situation has made that difficult, but yes. uh, our only place in Glasgow that was doing it has stopped because they were struggling for numbers. So, yeah, even even um, I've noticed that down here in London and the surrounding area. Um, but yeah, I just want to talk about uh, before we fully get into the the topic is your underworld's history. So obviously, you've only started playing recent. Well, not recently, like near the end of Shadespire, which some may consider new well most people now consider old um and yeah yeah like how what happened between that space of this when you started to winning the grand clash like did you play warhammer before or was warhammer underworlds your first experience with the warhammer world i'd say warhammer underworlds is probably my first real experience of Warhammer. i did collect um i think it was second edition lizard men back when i was a lot younger but never fully understood the game then and um Maybe over the last six or seven years, I've played board games, but this has been the first one I've really delved into that is from Games Workshop or Warhammer-based. Oh, what drew you to Warhammer Underwoods then? It was actually a, a friend of mine. You'll remember him as Molog Paul. He oh, kinda, yes. Uh, he stumbled across it and introduced it to me. And I'll be, I'll be honest, at first I was, I was kind of thinking it was just the original Shadespire. I thought, as a game, I thought, it's, it's all right. It's kind of, it needs a bit more content, but yeah, it's enjoyable. And But I did, what I didn't know at the time was, actually, there's a lot more content on the way. This is just the very basic base game that's came out. So 
What's yeah, I think well, a lot of people caught them off because um, but at the time Shadesware was released, people were used to Games Workshop doing like short splash releases that didn't really get supported after a few months. So I think that was a lot of apprehension when it came to Shadespire. Oh yeah, but once I started seeing the expansion packs and things like that, I was oh yeah, I can, I can get on board with this. So yeah, it's uh, it's grown greatly, and I think the consistency has surprised people because even I still get people saying, "Oh, it's going to die now," even though like <laughs> the developers have gone on record saying they've got years of content planned. Oh, that makes me happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it should make everyone happy. Uh, even though in these uncertain times, anything can happen. Uh, hopefully, Warhammer Underworld will still be continuing for the long foreseeable future. Um, but yeah, so what happened in that time space between you starting Shadespire and you uh, winning that Grand Clash? Because firstly, the UK Games Expo is a notoriously hard place to win because it's... Um, it's one of the biggest events in the world for the U- well for the UK anyway. Attracts attracts a huge international crowd and attracts everyone. It's like the board game center for mostly the world, pretty much, unless you get into American cons, which are beasts within themselves. Um, but like, what drove you to uh, get so good, and how did you? Because obviously, you would have had a small group, and traveling to tournaments is difficult. Because I had the the luxury to go to lots of tournaments all across the country, but you would have been more limited by where you were in Scotland. Yeah, uh, definitely was. And obviously being new to the game, I'd heard there was grand clashes and stuff like that down in England, but never really felt that I was ready to take anything on like that. The first, My first attempt, obviously, was uh, Tabletop Scotland in Perth, which is the first time I met you. Actually, in a, once you'd played against a couple of my friends, they said you absolutely schooled them. So we had a, so I had something to aim for basically then, hmm. and I, I knew I had a lot to learn. But I'd say I've partly been lucky as well because although the Scottish scene is relatively small, uh, my very small group of players, you know, I'm talking, we'd be lucky to get three or four at a time. They're all quite passionate about board games. They're all quick learners and they're all extremely competitive as well. So I think that's partly the kind of background that you need if you're going to be able to improve as a player on your own and also as a as a group well how big would you say is the group of players you regularly play with at the moment well during that time anyway because now it's obviously very difficult to play with people Uh, during that time i'd be lucky to have two other players that were playing regularly but uh but yeah, we'd be constantly bouncing ideas off each other. We'd never allow ourselves to play the same warband at a time. Ah. So that that was actually detrimental because what we realised quickly was, all right, we don't actually know how to play mirror matches. <laughs> Which was well, everyone hates them. Uh, I think mirror matches are a big subject within themselves because generally you're like, it's really difficult because you're trying to not play against yourself, but at the same time you are. Yeah, yeah that's true. And then you're... You're always expecting your opponent is going to be running pretty much the same, the same deck, and then when they're not, it can really catch you off guard. So yeah, you either get pleasantly surprised, like "Oh, they're not running that," but then you're also like, "Why aren't they running that?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I'd say the main kind of catalyst for my you know, friends getting relatively good at the game is we're not only competing against each other, but we're also looking to kind of improve each other's skill. So if my friend is having a, a hard time playing a certain warband, I'll then dive in, look through their cards and try and come up with some ideas. We'll bounce it off each other, give it a go and see how it works. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Because we kind of do the same thing, I'd say. It's like um, when I was hardcore into tournament testing, like practicing, that's what I would do. Like we'd get certain points in the game going, okay, I've lost here, but let's wind it back and see if I could have played it differently. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's really just the, the better the players that you're playing against, the one, the one, the better game, game, the more enjoyable it will be, and two, the better you will get as a player. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more to this game than just playing it. There's obviously the whole deck building aspect and uh, positioning things. So it's, it's actually quite a a lot to learn in the game so it's it's good to have even just one or two folk around you that can 
can tell you, oh yeah, you're doing this right or you're doing this wrong. Yeah, because I think uh, a big thing is what's often overlooked is while at the moment cards have become more important in Underworlds, I think people still today overlook the importance of positioning and where you put your fighters and where you send them. Um, Because one of the things I was lucky about is until I picked up, I had like a few friends who would do the same. They would go like, oh, you did this well, but if you positioned your fighter here, you could have done that. Uh, and I think it's a lot of things people miss because it's easy to fixate on the cards instead of going, well, actually, I put my fighters too far forward or too far back to actually engage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think my first kind of experience of learning that positioning is key was when I played against a friend of mine who played Control um, Steelhearts. Yep. I was playing Magors and he decided to offset the boards. And I positioned way too far back. I was just thinking, right, okay, it's going to be a battle. He's going to come to me. I'm going to come to him. So I'll use my speed as an advantage. And he just set up, he just moved right to the back of the board. And the well, only think... fighter I could get into range was the dog. And that just got wiped out. <laughs> and that was game over for me. I couldn't reach him with anyone else. So I was like, okay, positioning is, positioning is very important. Yeah, well, I hate... Uh, uh... Total control um, stormcast, but the the one thing it is good for is it does force you to get better with your positioning um, because it really forces you to make sure every action and activation is efficient as possible. Because when I was playing my spike claw swarm against it, um, you basically had to make every activation count. So you'd have to judge when it's right to draw, to move up. Like you don't charge in alone unless it's the last activation. So even though it's a terrible thing to play it's a good way to hone your positioning skills and uh, your action economy. Yeah, definitely. And um, positioning is actually what killed the tabletop grand clash for me as well. I think I was playing against a friend of yours, Alec Courtney. And uh, yes. I completely missed that I'd left scratch and range of, Car- no, not Carsis, uh, sake. Yes. From the get-go. Yep, first action, charge and twist the knife game over yeah because uh <laughs> he's he's played he played in my time at the um, despite my spike claws for him so much that he would always gun for scritch even if it um, meant like losing say it because it was a much better trade at the time mm. uh, which is annoying but it's like like that's why i always felt sorry when he when his reavers ran into spike claws swarm because he would just eviscerate them if you weren't prepared oh yeah so i learned my lesson very quickly then um yeah, even even things like the slightest little cards change in your deck can make a huge difference as well. And it's all it's all stemmed from players that actively try and improve each other's decks and try and improve each other's game. So a small change that led to me that probably led to me winning the UK Games Expo last year was uh, putting Crowton in my deck. And oh, oh yes, I remember that. Yeah, I've. I heard a few people tell me about how they hated your cruel taunt. Yeah, so that was that was literally a last minute entry. Uh, that was again, that was Molog Paul that just suggested it to me. He says, "Why don't you?" I can't remember what I swapped out for it, but uh, I, I tend to be quite tight with my my gambit deck, so I'm quite kind of delicate with it. And uh, I decided to trust him. I thought, you know what, you're right. Um, I probably should switch it, and and I probably never would have get past round three. Uh, playing against John Greenwood's gets if it wasn't for that card. Ah, why well, did you want to inspire Snook, I guess? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll destroy them, yes. Yeah, and somehow I'm still friends with the guy. I'm surprised he didn't hate me after that because it was successful uh, in all three games. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so it was very lucky. Um, but yeah, that's that's still really commendable. And even then, after you've won the Scottish Grand Clash, um, I think you just missed out on... You got top eight at the last Scottish Grand Clash, right? I can't remember where you placed, like ninth or... Um, sixth, if I remember right. Was... Oh, nice. Yeah, really good. Bringing my, my favourite warband with me that I tend to revert to when I'm, when I'm trying to have fun. I'm always competing. I'm always trying to win. But when I'm trying to have fun, I play the I play Sepulchre Guard. Oh, it's a commendable choice. I think my fun warband was the Godsworn Hunt um but no i don't know um but i i know what you mean yeah, that's just uh, the white then, tom bond up isn't it 
Yes, <laughs> he still hasn't won a trophy with them, and he never will. Never will. Uh, but even then, the most recent January Grand Clash, which had 168 players, uh, you came, well, we both came joint fourth slash third, whatever position they made. Um, you came with the Thorns. Yeah. You only narrowly be- lost out of getting into the final. Yeah, I was uh, I was praying as much as I could to whatever greater God would listen to me not to match me up against curse breakers. But, well, uh, we had the funny. I remember having a chat saying like how we we hoped because um, I was running my morn flight. So if I ran into the curse breakers, I would have won. And then if you went into the the grim watch, there was a high chances you could have won because that was actually a good matchup for the thorns. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and then we were like, even if we played each other, it wouldn't be too bad. And we got our worst matchups. So that's what you get for trying to pray to the bracket gods. So. Yeah, I'll need, to, <laughs> I'll need to change up, pray to Sigmar or something instead next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just ignore it and just play blind. Um, but yeah, so uh, now we've got all that out of the way, we're going to talk about basically how you can get good in isolation. So firstly, what would you say your main tips are, Tommy, for how to improve uh, when you're in like a small environment and a limited play group where you can't really travel regularly to events? Oh, I start one for me. I say a huge part of the game that sometimes kind of looked over is deck building. It's uh, it's far too easy nowadays. I, I, I'm not completely against it, net decking, but uh, I don't think it's a great tool for improving who you are as a player. So you can get access to great decks and you can get, you can, pick out ideas from net decking but to, in order to fully understand them I think you actually have to sit down and just build a deck yourself and play certain warbands and see what works and what doesn't work for them and yeah because I think we agree on this because um, I, I'm in the same opinion because that's why I don't write many deck lists myself unless it's like for my review articles because uh, I think deck building is often overlooked and unlooked at the same time because now the urge is, I'll just look at what the top deck is and go with that. I and mean, you can argue like, oh, I'll, I'll be able to deconstruct and learn why the player who did it made those decisions. But it would influence how you normally make a deck. So I would always advise, make a deck, play with it, and then use net decks, so decks online, to reference and compare your build. I wouldn't just say adopt it. Because um, I've had a lot of people who have always tried to reverse engineer my builds and never taken into account the way, way I play and why I pick those cards. So I think that's a huge... Um, there's more to the deck than just the deck list because you're not, you're not taking into account the pl- person's play style, the warband's play style, and what they're actually trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly. And I'd say the person's play style is a huge element of it because you can somebody can be very successful with a deck and then somebody else picks it up and it just doesn't work for them. And it's just because some people just aren't comfortable playing a certain style than others are. Like full aggro for me, just it's never great. I don't know what it, <laughs> what it is. It's just um, I like... Only great uh, for your opponent. Yeah, so full aggro, I think, all right, okay, we'll just charge in and it just never goes well for me. So I tend to kind of try and stay away from completely full aggro decks. I don't mind a bit of aggro. But uh, I like an element of flex to a deck, which kind of influences the warbands I choose. But uh, when it comes to deck building, what what I used to do before, like net decking was a big thing for this game. I literally used to just get every card that was available at the time out for whatever warband I was choosing, and I would just rattle through. And every card, even if it didn't kind of suit the strategy I was going for with the warband, if I thought it was even had an element of something that I could use then I would say okay yep and I would just separate the cards out that way and I might even have a stack of like 60 or 70 cards sitting there for the deck Uh, then I would decide right okay I need to find some kind of synergy between the cards I've got and I would break them up into groups of this card works with that one and that card works with that one and just start filtering down from there because it's it's one thing having strong cards in your deck but i think in order to have a successful deck there needs to be a a level of synergy between your objectives your ploys your upgrades they all kind of need to complement each other yeah i think that's heavily overlooked nowadays i mean i think that's solid advice for deck building um and it basically is all covered in my last episode so i'll i'll 
if you really want to get deep into deck building, I'd recommend listening to that because that's basically everything covered here, but in super insane detail. Um, but outside of deck composition, which I think you're 100% right on, uh, how did you go with warbands? Did you just pick what you thought was you had the most fun with or what you objectively thought was the best? Uh, it really depends. A lot of the time I'll pick something that I think can win and is fun for me to play. Uh, with uh, UK Games Expo last year with Okari, I was really just going for the win. That was objectively, I thought, this warband is the best. I've created something that is going to be very difficult to beat, is very consistent, and I'm just going to run that. Uh, maybe not my not my favourite warband to play, because it really is just... It was just machine gun employees or, or magic guns. <laughs> it's, uh, when it worked, it was really oppressive and not a lot of fun for the opponent, to be honest. But uh, as I said, it was really all about winning that one for me because I was desperate to get that one. <laughs> well, you did really well to achieve it. Oh, thank you. Uh, but I think that's the important thing. It's like, there. I think when it comes to warband choice, it's up in the air. It basically comes down to you as a player. Uh, personally, after trying to pick the best, uh, I find I, I'm, I suit best when I just play what I find is strong, but also I have more fun playing with. Uh, so I think a good example is when I tried winning with Thundrix Profiteers. They were amazing at the time. Um, and I did enjoy the way you could rapid like through inspiring and like chain stuff off. Um, but I had more fun playing other warbands, like namely Spike Claw Swarm, Thorns, and then eventually Mournflight. Even though those are all ridiculously strong warbands, um, they weren't the strongest at the time, I'd say. Um, but then outside of warband selection, what other tips have you got? Um, I'd say board choice is another one that's it's kind of more coming into it nowadays. People are starting to understand that board position and choice are a huge factor in the game. So... What I used to do is, a, depending on what warband I would play, I would kind of look at the boards and try and decide, right, okay, as far as starting positions go, which ones are favourable for the warband I'm playing? And then I would just simulate matching them up against other boards and see where like the threat ranges were. So I'd say, okay, against the, against a movement three warband, what starting hexes are in trouble when up against this board? against the movement four, against the movement five, and so on. Because as I say, if I'm playing things like Sepulchre Guard, the last thing I want to do is just randomly pick a board and have nowhere where I can place my warden that he's going to be safe. Mm. Well, I think that's great advice because that's basically what I used to do until I started playing regularly because then I could just... Um, when you're able to go to tournaments more, the thing is you can kind of play a bit loose with boards and just experiment. But when you can't, I think that's a good example because I used to, before I went tournaments regularly, was, as you said, just set out boards on the floor, especially with the warband I liked while I was thinking of playing and just keeping in mind threat ranges because you can lose um, games just on your deployment alone, uh, which is lessened to an extent with Beastgrave. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more if you started playing with Shadespire, you'd be more aware of those threat ranges. But I still think it's a good... It's really good to just, um, if you can't get games in, just place the board out and place your fighters and then look through where you want to charge with who and gauge those threat ranges. Yeah, exactly. And you need to be able to adapt in a best of three round as well. Even if you think you know what the best setup is, you need to kind of look at how your game goes and possibly adapt what you're doing as well. Because uh, a perfect example of that is when I played against Frederick in semi-final at the last Grand Clash. He he won boards all three times, which I was pretty salty about. But <laughs> the first game, I was playing Thorns against his Curse Breakers. He offset the boards, which was a ploy on his part to uh, take the... Oh no, sorry, he didn't I offset the boards, but he took the objectives from me to try and keep them from my Thorns. But that was actually favourable for me because then I can use things like Sudden Appearance and Fainway Crystal and whatnot and and keep my chain rasps away from his curse breaker. So he, he was starving for glory and I was able to kind of throw in stronger fighters to take him on and also cap the objectives at the same time. So he quickly learned, right, okay, that's that's not working for me. And the second time that he won boards, he changed up and he's like, okay, no, I'm going to take positioning and that way I'm going to 
just put him front facing and the next two games I, I just couldn't take him down because he was just pinging chain rasps down left left right yeah. center so it's yeah it's a perfect example of the huge difference board's positioning can make to the game but i think did did your friends help with that in regard because w- one good thing i found when i was bouncing off board ideas is uh, even when i couldn't play it was just going to my friend uh let's just roll off boards so you win boards and then i have to react to that so i like well i'm in the worst position like in shade spire and night vault when you lost the board roll you had to place boards first there was no choice so i'd go um like you win boards, like I would play, like suggest the unfavorable position for my opponent and how to react to that. Because the issue is when you're just doing it by yourself, one common trap you can fall into is getting into a routine where you go, okay, they're going to do this, so I'll do this. Like we just assume what your opponent is going to do. And that's the trap when you're on your own because you've got just yourself to work over and it's trying to second guess yourself, but not second guess yourself too much. Oh yeah, it's always favourable having someone to bounce ideas off and having someone to practice with. But in a situation where you maybe don't have that, boards is definitely one that you can sit down and kind of learn yourself. There's a lot to it, but it's it really is a case of just putting down all possible positions and figuring out in the situation that somebody chooses this board, then these boards are the most favourable for me, or depending on which warband but you could be there all day just writing down a list but you, you'll quickly learn that there'll be a you'll be a theme where one or two boards in particular tend to be the most favorable for you depending on who you're up against hmm. well i think uh one good thing to add was well to ask is how much did you practice with your friends because i do think a lot of practice is good but then there's obviously the downside of too much practice but um, and then there's the trap of constantly playing your friends only to the point where it skews all your data to the point where you're no longer practicing against the warband, you practice against your friends. So how did you do that into regards of yeah, just practicing? Yeah, that, that's actually a very, very good point. That's a trap we fell into on a few occasions where you you get what what's essentially called a closed meta, where my meta was me and my two friends. And that meta was adapting based on what we were trying to play against each other to beat each other but that doesn't quite translate properly against the rest of the, the uk or the world or whatever you're playing <laughs> so um that's that's an element of where net decking can actually be helpful because you can look at other tournaments that have went on you can look at what other metas are like and what people are playing and you can see how that kind of matches up with what you're choosing to play in your deck build is we ended up in situations where we're playing like terrible cards, but they just happened to counter whatever warband and decks we were playing at the time. Um, so yeah, it's important that you don't put cards in that just directly counter and more focus on choosing cards that will be favorable in situations against a variety of warbands or even not necessarily against different warbands that you're playing but just will work depending on the objective deck that you're running at the time yeah because i think it's uh it's often overlooked how bad getting a clo- going into a closed meta is uh, and i think that's the biggest drawback of when you're playing in a really small community but it's almost impossible to overcome because it can happen without you realizing it uh, it's it's a very quick thing to to happen um but i don't uh, like one thing i can branch into is other ways to play underworlds online so at the moment you've got warhammer worlds online which is just locked in shade spire well it's locked in whatever it's doing now at the moment um uh but obviously you have webcams so webcam gaming has been in there for a while but there's also other ways to play because i know you play um vassal which is an online uh, way to play Underworlds, not the most crystal clear of ways, but um, but you. Uh, when did you start hopping onto that and playing around with that? Because I guess that was a big part for your training, I think. Yeah, definitely. So Vassal is just a kind of program where you can upload the the product you've all, you've already bought. I would hope and play against basically anyone anyone in the world using Discord for communication. Uh, that's been a huge uh, influence in what I've been playing nowadays and the people I've managed to play against and it's an incredibly useful tool if you're not especially in the current climate where you're not allowed to basically go out and play against your friends 
Because yeah, obviously, I'd still encourage you to, to actually buy the game and support it instead of just playing it for free um, without supporting it. But if you can, I um, I think it's a decent tool, especially with what's going on in the world at the moment. But yeah. when did you exactly start into it? Because obviously, the good thing about that, even though that is technically a closed environment in itself, it still offers you a larger pool of players to build off of and play against. Yeah, so I was one of the first invited onto it. It was uh, around about this time last year, the start of May, um, which was just before the games expo. Actually, so that actually managed to let me get a lot of a lot of games in a short space of time. When yeah, because before... I remember you telling me you you grinded in a lot of games just before then to get some sort of practice against what you were expecting to run into. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because before that. Um, I was playing maybe once a week could maybe get three or four games in in a night. That was the that was the most practice I'd be getting at a time. And a lot of the f- in between that would just be basically discussing different decks and discussing the game and coming up with ideas. So it's been a, a great tool for getting more games in. And really, I think it's... I would never see it having a chance of replacing the physical game because there's nothing like actually playing at the Grand Clashes themselves or play, playing with your friends in person. It's just a good tool for when you really don't have that opportunity to get out and actually use the physical game itself. Yeah, that's uh, that makes sense. But I think it's like online play in general is a good way for someone with a small environment or can't travel, especially if you're looking to improve your skills and just get better with the game, it's a valid route to take. Because obviously there is Vassal, there's Tabletop Simulator as well, which I think is dead or dying, um, and Webcam games, which are my preferred one, just like I prefer the physicality of it. Uh, but that's more difficult to organise. But usually whatever method you choose, um, usually the Underworlds community Facebook groups help you in that regard. Uh, and segueing into that, um, how much did the online community or, well, the online scene in general help you with um, like how how much would you recommend that to players who are in their own isolated community? Oh, uh, massively. If you're in an isolated community, you're going to be struggling to come up against a variety of players. Likely you're going to find there's war bands that you've never actually played against before. And even when you do, it might not necessarily be someone who's piloted them for a while or has even mastered them. So, yeah, it just opens up a whole new avenue for playing against players that take on different warbands, different styles of decks. And because it's because it's somewhere you can practice, you really are going to come across different ideas and decks that maybe aren't meta, but somebody's just trying to kind of come up with that meta breaking combo and things like that. Oh, so. I know, I know what you're talking about. So like the um, one good thing I used as well, because even though I uh when I was really into the tournament scene, uh, even though I was traveling around, I did the same. So I would scout and read every deck I could find online, not to improve my deck, but just to improve my general game knowledge. And I think it's a good way because there was <laughs> one time at the start of Shades by there was, um, I call it a meme deck, but it's the Hold Objective Oryx. And some guy was going around, I won a store tournament this, I'm undefeated in my area. Um, so I, I, I read the deck and then, okay, that's how I take it apart. Uh, and then... I didn't realize he popped down to one of my local tournaments uh, and then I just deconstructed the deck as I played. Um, but it, if I didn't read the deck online, I wouldn't have been aware of that. So it actually kept me in mind uh, when you look at warbands, because the greatest thing about Underworlds, you can basically play warbands in whatever way you choose. Uh, and it helped open my eye to realize, yeah, there's not everyone is just going to play an aggro warband as aggro. Yeah, well, I've seen a objective holding Magor's deck, so I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, that's called the the high skill play on Warhammer Worlds Online, where Magor's Fiends rank one with hold objective. Yeah. Best uh, of um, one winners. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think, yeah, good thing is it's it's this it, you can fall into the same pitfalls as the closed meta, um, because no matter how big a player group is, you have to keep in mind that there's a certain group of players who are regularly active. And even though you've only seen one thing, you may get fixed data. So it's always keep an open mind when it comes to online. Um, Cause you can even get crazy interpretations when it comes to rules, which could affect your deck. Oh, yeah. um, and I think I wouldn't be 
like I think sharing your deck online is good once you've got some games in and you're looking for um, critiques. But just be in mind, uh, unless you fully explain it, even when you fully explain the deck, people don't always see that and just say, this is rubbish, change that. Yeah, it's it's very important to take criticism for a deck as well. One thing I have found, maybe not so much nowadays with the community, when um, trophies were really becoming kind of a common theme was people would be winning a trophy, posting up their deck list, and then others would be trying to kind of critique it and say, oh, I wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. And it's very easy for people to turn and say, oh, well, it must be good because they've won class with it. And it's no, it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> like winning a, a small tournament or even winning a grand clash doesn't mean that the deck is perfect and is played perfectly. It's it, the game has a huge luck element to it as well. So it's always good to kind of accept critique and try different things and not just assume that if you net deck someone who's won a tournament that you're going to be successful with it. Yeah. Because once again, it falls back to keeping in mind how, how it plays and how experienced the player is. Like a common thing in regards to my decks, where I used to run always twenty-two card decks, even though that's technically not the best. Uh, and I would always take that into account because playing with more than twenty is generally a disadvantage. Um, when it comes to Beast Grave, I go back down to twenty. Um, but it's that's how I played, and people are like, oh, it's great, we'll just cut it down to twenty, but that's how they played. And on, on maths, statistics alone, that they're technically right, but it suits how I play, um, which is not necessarily how everyone else thinks. So that's something you need to keep in mind when you're giving back feedback and able to take it. Obviously, you'll get into weird interactions where some people are like, no, that doesn't make sense. That's your opinion. You should change it to this. But uh, it's to keep in mind, sometimes things you've made aren't good. And when they aren't, unless you can like, reasonably justify it, justify it you have to accept that sometimes you make bad decks or bad card choices yes i, I was always a, i still am a strong advocate for the the 20 card deck um i did give the 22 card deck a go back in shades days when you had uh, improvisation and jewel of wits and even then what i found was i was opening up an avenue where there was a possibility even if it was a small one, there's still that possibility where Jewel of Wits and Improvisation were going to be at the bottom of my deck. Yeah, and I, just, why I, yeah. <laughs> I just did I not don't like break <laughs> Yeah, that's the issue. It's like when you bottom deck those. Um, but yeah, we've covered online because that's quite a big thing. Um, is, there, is there any other tips you'd recommend for people who aren't, who are still in, playing in like small communities? Um... Yeah, I would say as much as it's fun to stick to the warband that you like, I mean, I've been quite lucky that Seraphon haven't been released yet because I would have probably been hardcore Seraphon since day one if they had been. But it's also important to maybe take on warbands from time to time that you haven't tried before and that you maybe don't even don't understand or struggle to play against. Is um, It's... It's one thing to play against a warband loads of times and can understand how to beat them from your end. It's another thing to understand what it is like to play with them and know their weaknesses and kind of understand what you don't want your opponent to do so that you can be successful rather than just playing against certain warbands and understanding what you need to do from your end as an opponent. I think that's good advice because um, I now regularly play with different warbands and try to win with them. And I think it's more so it helps open your eyes instead of just how to beat them. It, well, it expands it because instead of just going, this is how I beat them, it goes, now I know what they want to do. So now I can play around that instead of just going, I know what their fighters do. It's an extra layer of depth that you need. Um, but I could, even if you can't play those warbands, like or play against them, I would encourage just playing with them, even for a few games, like three or five, even if you lose with them, because as long as you've played with them, you've got some information from them. And even if you don't have access to them, you can always use like online deck builders to build a deck for a warband. I would say when you've got some free time, have a go at trying to build the best deck you can for a warband you don't play, because then you can go, okay, because um, you had an episode in Nightbolt where you could basically make the same deck for every warband and it would work. 
Uh, but now with the way the game is, warband, uh, decks are more individualized to the warband. So I would say it does build your skills because you have to go, I built an aggro deck, but this this warband won't work with that. It's Eyes of the Nine, so I need to rethink how to actually make this deck work. Yeah. And what I actually I do now, there's what I've always kind of done, is every single release that comes out, it's very easy to have your deck already made and then when that release comes out you have a you pick a couple of cards and you decide, all right, actually I can trade these ones in. What I tend to do is I just erase my entire deck list. Which sounds terrifying, but it means that when I'm creating the deck again, I'm not overlooking some potential synergies that can come from new cards and older cards that I've perhaps overlooked or haven't really been useful at the time that I've made the deck originally. Uh, no, that, that makes a lot of sense because I basically do the same thing. So I have a lot of friends who play competitive card games and their advice is whenever they build a deck, they don't just add new cards, they deconstruct it and rebuild it. Um, and it may not make sense because you're like, you're deleting all your data. You, d- you don't have any cards to fall back on. But when you're looking at all the cards, you would go, this is strong, I'll take it. So then you have a strong pool and then you go, if you, if you have too many cards, you can go, okay, now I need to trim down. Because I think the issue is when you just, pick and choose um, cards from new decks. Uh, no, deck uh, cards from new card packs. The issue you find is like, as you said, it doesn't necessarily complement what you play. You're just adding a strong card for the sake of it being strong. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's something else I was going to say as far as... Uh, try to kind of write down. It's, it's hard to put any words uh, what the best things to do to learn this game arc is as it's, it's it is an quite in game. depth <laughs> i mean um another resource i'd recommend is obviously my blog uh but any other blog and any type of uh social media well, not social media but online media that you can find because uh that's part of the reason i made my blog because there is so much data to this game there's such a dense layer of knowledge that's not readily available it can help open your eyes. So like even my deck building article or something I always recommend because people, when they think of building a deck, I've got to just build the cards. Like, no, you start off with the warband and you look at it, analyze its strength and weaknesses and then analyze how you want to play. Uh, and then you build the deck from there. But there's even stuff like, uh, it helps when you can see all the boards. I've got a board article because then it just shows the names. Um, but like there's so much ways to digest content. There's articles, videos, podcasts like this. Um, and I think that's a good way for people to learn because there's just so much hidden data to this game. Yeah. And that's the other thing I was going to say. It is important to lose in this game. Yes. Although, although it's not a choice sometimes, what I've found with some players is they kind of find that sweet spot with a, with a deck in the current met- meta. And they're like, right, okay, I'm winning games and they'll just play it over and over and over and over and they consider it practice but it gets to a stage where it's, it's really it's no longer practice you've mastered that deck you know how to play that warband and you're not learning anything new you're just repeating the the same steps over and over again yeah exactly and even if you want to play the same warband you can try change out even just a couple of cards to see how much of a difference that makes it might improve things a little, might make things a lot worse, and then you realise, okay, right, those cards are actually really important. I can try a different couple of cards and see what happens when I when I change them out and change my style. You can always revert back to that original deck that you had uh, if you're playing something important, but it's good when you're practising just to kind of change things up and see what you can learn from it. Well, yeah, I think that falls back on uh, with playing with different warbands. Uh, but it's a really good point because I think a common trap it's a common trap people can fall into. Because uh, even when with my Spike Claws Swarm, I'd say their deck I completed, well, I got my final version basically three months into playing with them. Um, and what helped me is because I'd basically been playing them for so long, I could play them inside and out. So playing on to different warbands, even just playing against them, allowed me to go, it's like, okay, this is how I do with other warbands. It's like that freedom and refreshment because then it, it helps keep your eyes open because I think a common trap people fall in is to over-practicing. And I'm always an advocate of not doing that because um, it's over-practicing can burn you out and actually make you a worse player. Yeah, definitely. And you feel it at the end of a grand clash. like The oh, yes. difference in play from game one to uh, game three and round four perhaps is just huge. 
uh, it's, it's ridiculous. I can't believe the, the mistakes that players start to make at that point. Oh, yes. It's the, the, the common mistake is misreading a card that's in your hand that you forget about or is not actually the card that's in your hand, still in your deck. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think a good thing is, especially when you want to play in tournaments, um, it's trying to keep your composure. Now, that's really difficult to do because usually um, if you're playing by yourself, you're not playing with tournaments regularly. And even if you're playing online um, in whatever format you choose, there's not it's not reflective of the way a real tournament is in terms of duration. So my advice for that would be um, it's just you have to be able to manage your stress, and that's really difficult to do. Um, but it's something you have to keep in mind because um, what can shock people, even going from a, st- a store tournament to a Grand Clash, is after round two, you can feel destroyed mentally. Oh, yeah, definitely. And a lot of that depends on the warband that you decide to take on the day as well. Uh, I'm terrified of ever taking gets to a, a Grand Clash. I don't know no, how right. people do it. <laughs> I don't know how that how how John does it. Like literally, he's he pretty much runs gits all the time, and it's just I love playing against gits, but they terrify me because of how much work they take. Yeah, and you find a lot of players the the time that allocated doesn't always reflect how long it takes to play gits and kind of large model warbands as well. See, it happens quite a lot where the time just runs out. And say round one of game three when gets are involved and that can be another challenge in itself, can understanding that you need to speed up the game, otherwise you're potentially falling trapped to a player who's gonna let the time run out so that when he scores all that glory in round round one, he might not have won the game, but he scores everything round one and then the game's over. Yeah, because so. I think um it also branches into timing. But I think timing and stress are huge things that you won't realize until you actually play in a tournament. So I would always advise um, playing with a stopwatch or some form of timer. So depending on what your tournament is, always keep in mind what you're playing. If you're playing that best of one tournament with 45-minute rounds, that's what you should set your time to. If you're playing at a Grand Clash, you need to set it to an hour and a half and keep in mind the warband you're playing. If you're playing an elite warband like Curse Breakers, you'll have lots of time to do whatever you want. But if you are playing Gits you are going to have to expect that you'll run out of time and you have to yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, and I would always and expect... with the stress. Yeah. Oh, no, I would always on. expect players to kind of consciously try and make sure that that doesn't happen as well. Um, I was left in a situation, again, it was a semi-final of the last Grand Clash against Frederick, where if I really wanted to, if I was that kind of guy, I could have just let the time kind of run out a wee bit at some point in the game because at that point in the round... Uh, it would have been we wouldn't have time have had time for the third game or the second round the third game whatever time it was and I would have won but I don't expect anybody ever to ever want to win with a technicality like that so I tried to kind of keep the game going as quickly as I could Mm. and uh, I'd say it's stuff like that's good for the community as well because the last thing you want is to be left with a a bad taste in your mouth where you feel like your opponent's kind of not tricked you as such but kind of yeah because like a good thing to keep in mind are tiebreakers so that's something you won't normally acquire but it's like read the rules pack inside and out and make sure you know because the worst thing is getting caught out on tiebreakers which usually uh most amount of fighters left or who's holding them uh, who's wiped out or who's holding the most objectives um but i think it's important you keep down on your time really really important thing and that's very difficult to build in you're playing by yourself especially if you don't play regularly. So it's always important to play with the timer. Some tournaments keep times clear for everyone, but a lot don't. And even if they do, it's always not clear. So I always say, even just with your phone, I always put my phone on my timer. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a good thing to do. And um, that kind of behavior as well is also an example of what I would advise to become a better player yourself because gatekeeping can be a a pretty kind of terrible thing for a community in itself. So if you're going along to terms, if you just happen to be a really good player in your current meta or your current community and you're going along and you're winning absolutely everything, you're going to completely destroy the morale of the players around you. So it's important to decide, okay, again, I can win with this deck. I'm going to try a different warband. I'm going to try something new. Maybe I'll lose. 
that's fine, but I'll learn something and everyone else around me will have a much more enjoyable time because they've got a chance of winning and they've got a chance of playing against something different. No, I think that's an amazing point because it touches back to my first podcast, which is about growing a community. It's one uh, like an important thing when you're playing on your own, you are playing in a very, very tight community. So it's important you don't turn that into a negative environment. Um, so if you are always winning, or even if you're f- playing with someone who's always winning, keep in mind or just try and ask them, would you like to switch things up? Because um, there's something I didn't do for a while until I started playing with different war bands or until my friends start saying like, well, let's try something else. And I was like, okay, that's actually pretty good. Um, because yeah, after a point, you're not just going to learn anything from continual losses or continual wins. You need to open up so the people you're playing with who are generally going to be really close friends or like just the people you regularly game, you want, you want everyone to have a good time. So this is a more difficult subject because now you're not just thinking about yourself, really thinking about that small group of players you're playing with even if it's just someone you're regularly playing online. Yeah, exactly. It all just kind of boils down to the fact that it is a game and it's got to be enjoyable for, for both parties. You know, um, And again, if you're improving on the skill level of your opponent and you're improving on the fun that your opponent's having, they're going to, in turn, do the same for you. So we think the, the I think community an improves the whole. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, the community improves as a whole and you as a player will improve alongside that yeah because the important thing is having fun over winning uh because i've had more fun when i've lost really tight games than when i've just uh had crushing wins because um you just want to be tested and you want to have fun and i think the best part about the game is when you test yourself and see how far you can go yeah definitely Um, Uh, i've got a player online i play against quite often and who I always seem to get matched up against in grand classes, uh, Sean Matson. Um, <laughs> Mad Angry he is on Vassal. He, whenever I play against him, it's almost a guarantee it's going to be three games in the best of three. We're going to have at least one draw that either of us have won on holding objectives. And we're going to, one's going to beat the other maybe on one glory or two glory every time. And we're just going to be brain dead by the end of it. It's, it's the same every time, but it's a really enjoyable game, and it's it's great to have a player like that where you can be so equally matched up against. Yeah, and that's something you actually might come across when you're either playing in your small community or online. And I think uh, a good thing to keep in mind is sometimes it's a fighting game term, but it's like called your demon. So someone who where the games you play are just always tight or you always lose to them, um, no matter what the matchup is. So it's even if you've got like an amazing matchup, you still just end up losing. It's sometimes you have to keep in mind, it's just the player, not just the, yeah. not just the cards and what they're using. Yeah, don't shy away from them. Those are the kind of players that you want to play against as much as possible because those are going to be the games that you learn the most from. Yeah, and it's yeah always important to learn from your losses. Like, it, I can't stress this enough. I mean, that's why I always post about tournaments where I win or lose. Because um, I know a lot of other people don't. But it's it's really important to learn from your losses because it's it's actually harder to learn from your win, your wins until you're more experienced. Because then you can go, I won, but I didn't do it as efficiently. I was like came down to dice, but especially if you play an aggro, that doesn't matter. Um, but with your losses, it's a good thing to ask when you lose. What did I do wrong? What did you think I did wrong? It's really important because, uh, especially when you're playing in such a tight-knit community, it's easy to get lost in your own head. Yeah, exactly. It really is. Because yeah, it's... It, it's uh, The good thing about Underwood, it's so tight and small. You can just pick apart where exactly it went wrong. Sometimes, it, as I said, it can come down to dice, which is... Just let dice be dice. Don't don't worry about dice. Um, but you can l- like learn key things like oh, I I positioned too early or I charged too early. I should have left my fight a bit more back until there was a less chance of being countercharged. It's things to keep in mind. And when you're playing in such a small knit community, um, that's where the people you're playing with become really important because they can help pick stuff out for you, and you can help pick stuff out for them as well. So it's always a two way street. Yeah, and sometimes you just have to accept there's just. In some games, there's going to be nothing you can do. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's just, sometimes there's nothing. Yeah, I played against a friend of yours, sorry, his name escapes me right now, in the quarterfinal of the, 
the last Grand Clash. David Smee. David Smee, yeah, lovely guy. He was playing his Grimwatch and the Mathorns, and the dice were not in his favour, the cards were not in his favour, and the two of his bases just looked at each other and accepted, like, there's nothing you can do here. Whatsoever. It's a horrible situation, but you need to be able to kind of walk away from that and say, right, okay, there's nothing really to learn from that. It's just the game decided, the dice and the cards decided that I wasn't going to win that one. So you got to pick yourself back up and try again in the next one without feeling that, you know, uh, you know, I'm just unlucky or this happened. I couldn't win because of this. You know, you can't let it get you down. You just got to keep like chipping away at it. Oh, no, 100%. That's exactly what he said. He was like, oh, it's great playing to get Tommy. I just wish I was a better opponent because I was just completely ruined by everything. Um, but yeah, it's important not to get too hung up on your losses and not overly analytical because sometimes you just lose. Like um, one of my favorite things I like to talk about is when I was with my Godsworn. I think it was my fourth iteration where I scored everything in my deck against your Fiery's Guardians, still lost. I think it was 1825. Um, it, it's like sometimes things just don't go your way and you have to accept that. There's nothing you can really do. Um, but also it's within reason, like you will have times where everything's gone wrong and there's nothing you can do. But I think one of the worst things you can do is just say, I lost because of dice. Because um, sometimes it's justifiable, like in that aggro mirror. Uh, but I think it's always courteous to be a good loser, which is difficult. So it's just something you'll have to learn as well. But that comes into managing your losses. Yeah, exactly. Something I've actually forgot to mention that's a huge influence on improving as a player, especially when you've been in the game for quite some time, is just investing and new players or even just picking a, a new player and just investing a lot of time and trying to improve their their game and improve their knowledge of the game can be a huge help in understanding some of your own flaws and things that you maybe think are right but aren't quite perfect yet. Oh no, it's, it's so. a good shout because basically um, teaching is what helped me get better because I basically use my blog to teach people teach people and you can also coach and it, even if you're not the best player when you're instructing someone new you can go okay yeah this does make sense or like you can talk through the process where you're almost talking to yourself in a way and that's more difficult to gauge but uh, I think it's a good point to, to add because also you're adding someone new to your community especially um, as always you're not always in a lucky situation where you can grow your community so your new players are, are very important to the lifeblood of not just you, but you're seen because the more people you have, the more people can play. Yeah, exactly. Um, so a, a, perfect, a perfect example for me is uh, Benny Monaghan. Mm. So he was a brand new player playing Reavers when I first met him online. I uh, had almost no clue how to play the game at all. He was just in the, still in the old situation where it's, I'm just going to charge everyone all the time, every possible opportunity. I don't care about the objective cards. I just want to kill your fighters. I'm just going to keep charging until I do so. Uh, so he was completely fresh out the box. Really nice guy. So I thought he's putting a lot of effort in to learn the game. He's investing a lot of time in playing. So yeah, I thought I'm going to spend a bit of time with this guy, play against him, uh, any opportunity I get and just kind of teach him where and when I can. And he's very quickly developed into a player that's doing really well the grand classes he just won the last fastball tournament yeah 62 players and i think um i think his first grand class he got top 16 or almost top 16 yeah that's uh, oh, in fact i think he had 17 or yeah it was like just out or something yeah, so it was like uh, narrow no he did get top 16 in the first one it was the second one he just missed out yeah that's right that's right uh, but very good player now and that's this guy gets more games in than anyone I know. He's, he's never off the game. So well, he's, he's a great example of tutoring as well as also getting good in an area where you're quite isolated. Um, but yeah, to summarize, basically, um, try and practice, you know, within reason. Don't over-practice too much. Use online resources where available. Always try to play online if you can, if it's easier. So like Vassal, Tabletop Simulator, Warhammer models online, webcams. Um, yeah, and it's just nurturing those players you've got. It's kind of a lot of what I've said before on other topics and articles. 
Uh, but you just have to keep in mind, you don't want to make yourself the biggest enemy because that's usually the biggest downfall when it comes to playing in small groups to just give up. Um, yeah. Definitely. So always keep an open mind. And if you follow everything said in the podcast, maybe one day you'll be as good or even better than Tommy. <laughs> um, <Fair> yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Then maybe they won't pick the Pokemon God next time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. So yeah, thanks for listening today and um, hope you had fun listening to the third episode of CritCast. Um, so it's goodbye from me and... and... Goodbye from me. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so see you guys. Have a good day. Goodbye.